Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost, Masters of the Groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you want to have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. A great way to start, start off uh, 2018. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you as always very much for your support. You've tuned into another great episode because my guest today is Minneapolis-based singer, songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist Paul Peterson, a one-time Prince protege who spent time in the time, co-fronted its successor, The Family, today known as F Deluxe, recorded as a solo act, and has been a busy in-demand session player. The youngest son of a highly musical family, Paul got his big break when leading up to filming the Purple Rain film. Personnel changes allowed him to step in as a member of Prince's legendary protege funk band, The Time. He appeared in that movie's phenomenon and on The Time's uh, album that was related to that Ice Cream Castle. That album included the smash songs, The, the uh, Bird and Jungle Love. In 1985, the family's album included the first commercially released version of Nothing Compares to You, sung by Paul, and funk gems like Mutiny, High Fashion, and The Screams of Passion. Paul then pursued solo success and worked and recorded with some of the industry's top names. Those include Steve Miller, Peter Frampton, Kenny Loggins, Donny Osmond, Olita Adams, Anita Baker, George Benson, Phil Upchurch, Les McCann, and Victor Wooden are now bass player who has called Paul one of his favorite artists and bass players. Among the many projects, St. Paul, as he's often called, as a reference to the Twin Cities, <clears throat> excuse me, is presently involved in, includes F Deluxe, LP, and F Deluxe Offshoot with longtime collaborating sax player Eric Leeds and the Minneapolis Funk All Stars. That band includes a dozen or so musicians familiar to Prince fans with performances that run the gamut of the Purple and Song catalog, as well as those of the time, other protege acts and purveyors of the Minneapolis sound, like Alexander O'Neill and Janet Jackson. Aside from recording, Paul also runs the consulting service, Peterson Music and Events, which was started by his father, Willie Peterson, in the 1940s. As a huge fan of the Minneapolis sound, or mini-funk as I like to call it, I'm delighted to welcome to Truth and Rhythm, a pillar of that musical community, Mr. Paul St. Peterson Peterson. Hey, how are you, man? What's Thanks up? Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So glad to have you here from chilly Minnesota, right? Well, you see, I've got the winter garb on here, man. I got the long growth. I got everything that I can do to keep myself warm here. It's brutal, but yeah. that's why we love it. It keeps the riffraff out. Hey, that's what Prince used to say, right? That's why he stayed there. Well, we all say it. Then. It's true. Nobody wants to come here when it's January, you know, 14 below. That's when we get the funk done. Yeah, <laughs> you would shed. That's right. It's exactly it. It's amazing. It's, it, it, there is a lot of truth to that. So as I'm speaking to you uh, today, Paul, it's one day after the amazing Vikings win. I don't know if you're a fan or not. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up because unbelievable. You know, we thought, oh, here we go again. It's the same thing. You have 23 seconds left on the clock. I'm sitting with my wife. I had just gotten off the plane. We're like, oh, bummer. It would have been such a great thing to be, you know, even have a shot at having a Super Bowl in your own hometown. And uh, we went, oh, well, there goes that. Oh, well, 
what a great game. And then on that last play of the game, I don't think I've ever seen a, a finish like that. No. It's it was... really incredible. So we're, needless to say, we're a little on the happy side around here about our Vikings. Skull! Skull! <laughs> you know what? I think uh, the sentiment around the country is pulling for the Vikings to be the first home team in the Super Bowl. And also, I think there's a lot of anti-Patriot sentiment around there. So I think well, uh, everyone's on the Vikings else's side. turn. That's all. I mean, I, we'll, we'll take the support, all the support we can get. That's for sure. We'll need it. Awesome. So is there a lot of uh, stuff going on? Is it exciting around there, gearing up for the big game? Oh, yeah. There's. Um, it's really the calm before the storm. We, uh, I was just telling you earlier, we had an F-Deluxe rehearsal before the rehearsal today. Uh, we we have a bunch of gigs coming up before, and dur actually during the Super Bowl, Wednesday, uh, January 31st, we're doing two shows at the Dakota, and uh, that, that's going to be with five original members and of course we call ourselves f deluxe but jerome Susanna, myself eric lees and jelly Bean. we haven't gotten together i don't i think it's 10 years except i don't know the exact date but it's dang close to 10 years the last time we were together was for quests loves uh pre-grammy party I, I think it is 10 years ago something like that but needless to say we're all excited to, to be hanging out making music again especially during the exciting time here in Minneapolis for the Super Bowl that the Vikings are going to be in and win. Predicted it right here on your show. <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> well, that's a beautiful thing, and I think that's kind of a Super Bowl of music right there. So, There's so much music going on. Uh, it's One of the funny things is that there's so much music going on outside during that time. So we'll see how that happens. I mean, Sheila, the time... F Deluxe, The Revolution, Andre Simone, Soul Asylum, Husker Du, everybody's playing. It's it's really a cool so showcase, and uh, Terry and Jimmy are doing a great job organizing that. That is great. That's just great. All right. Well, amid that excitement and hoopla, um, I wanted to, uh, um, you know, I think I was telling you before we started recording what a huge fan I am of the scene and uh, going back to 79. And uh, you know, followed you from the 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 first well from Purple Rain and of course the first time album, Family and on through. So very glad to have you uh, here today, Paul. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So uh, with that, <clears throat> you know, I mentioned you're from a musical family. And, yeah. Uh, if you could uh, just talk about that a little bit and how you uh, fell into you know playing so many instruments and and getting going. Well, I'm actually sitting in the house that I grew up in. When my mom passed away four years ago, um, we wanted to keep the house and the family. And my kids had uh, just graduated college and, and high school, my two girls. And my wife and I looked at each other and we went, I think it's a perfect time for us to be able to make this move. So we came here, we renovated the house. Downstairs is exactly the same as it's been for many, many years. The reason I bring that up is that Downstairs is our rehearsal hall. Not only has the, the entire Peterson family rehearsed there, but we've had everybody from George Benson to Steve Miller to David Sanborn to uh, Oscar Peterson all rehearse in this basement. No. Finally, I started having one of them. We have like a, a history and dates of all these people. 
Jelly Bean signed the wall today. I had Eric Leeds sign the wall today. Pretty fantastic. So I'm sitting in uh, this house, which is full of music history. My parents uh, were great musicians. My mother, as I just mentioned, was killing just unbelievable uh, jazz keyboardist and vocalist. My father was the same. He was a wonderful arranger, and he ran the business that I've now taken over. But he died when I was four. But he was so well-renowned throughout the Midwest here. Then all my brothers and sisters, they all play. I'm the youngest. Linda's the oldest. She's, I just visited her in Palm Springs. She's the only smart one who gets out of here in the wintertime and goes out and plays gigs up in Palm Springs. So if you're ever out there, go and check out Linda Peterson. My brother Billy is probably one of the best jazz upright bass players in the world. He tours with Dave King, who's a very well-known drummer another by, uh, person by the name of Billy Carruthers, but I guess his claim to fame is to be, was being Steve Miller's bass player for 25 years. Then there's uh, Sister Patty. She's an incredible a singer. She's sung on so many different records uh, that were made here through the 80s, 90s, and of course she's still singing today. Wonderful jazz singer and radio personality and uh, motivational speaker. Brother Ricky is... Uh, probably the first call keyboard player in the world. He just got up tour with Stevie Nicks. He, for, for the Prince fans out there, he produced the most beautiful girl in the world, uh, the gold experience. So he kept, actually, Ricky kept me busy in Paisley Park while Prince and I were not necessarily on the best of terms. <laughs> so I was playing on a bunch of records for my brother while that was all going on. And then there's me. So. A lot of trickle-down things are happening. You know, my brothers and sisters passed down a lot of their knowledge, as well as my parents, to me. And I'm just grateful to be able to be sitting in the house where that all happened. Wow, the family gatherings. Did you guys bust out instruments all the time or what? You know, this was the first year we've done anything other than just socialize. We actually sang at Christmas time. We sat around and sang a couple of Christmas carols. That was the first time we've ever done it, and it was really fun. But we do have a Christmas concert that we've been doing for 35 years. We call it Twas the Jam Before Christmas. So that's whenever we're in town, if we can get together and play, we always do our best to try to make that happen. So what was your first uh, and primary instrument, and how did you kind of go from there? Well, that's a really good question. My, my first instrument was drums. I'm a frustrated bebop drummer. And in fact, when we do get together, I am the designated drummer most of the time, considering my brother Billy is a world-class bass player. Uh, I'm more drawn to the bass. I guess I started picking that up probably when I was close to 10, 9, 10 years old. I'm four drums from the time I'm two, guitar from the time I'm six. And I started saxophone in there, and I put that down real quick because it was, that was too difficult for me. Uh, leave that to the pros. So I, uh, I still play all those different instruments. And of course, I love to produce and program the computers to do what I love to do, which is record. And you know, nowadays, you can really uh, make incredible art with the computer. And uh, that's what I love doing. Boy, I tell you, it's lucky that uh, none of your siblings had a tin ear. Can you imagine coming up in the Peterson clan and you actually don't have any musical talent? <laughs> they would have been thrown out immediately. <laughs> Get out! Go!
So uh, what were some of your first uh, experiences like actually performing and, and kind of leading us up to uh, when you, for, I don't know if it's an accurate term, but got discovered by Prince. So what were you doing before then? Well, of course, playing within my own family, my brothers and sisters were in top 40 bands for years and they were looking for a bass player. During high school, my sister ended up hiring me. I'd been doing gigs with my mom since the time I was 14 or 15 years old. So mom, my, since my father passed away, mom was gigging all the time. She was like, cool, go ahead. You can do gigs with your sister. So I was 15 or 16 and starting to work six nights a week in a bar. I think word got out that I was, you know, I could hold my own for the most part. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I was up on a little vacation and I got a phone call from my brother-in-law, Stuart, who said, get your butt back down here. We've got a, uh, an, uh, you have an audition with the time. I'm like, what? So I cut my vacation short, went home, I thought I'd have a few days to learn these songs. I ended up having, when all is said and done, about, I'd say, 12 hours. I had to memorize three or four songs, be able to obviously know the song very well, and uh, be able to play and sing them and look as cool as a 17-year-old kid can look going into the situation like that. And so I walked in, auditioned for Jesse Johnson and Jelly Bean and Jerome. Morris was not there. Got a call back. Came back the next day, Prince was there, and uh, ended up getting the gig. Well, so did you kind of think you nailed it and had it, or were you surprised, or what? That's a long time ago, man. <laughs> uh, you know, you're pretty confident when you're when they're that young, and it's sometimes ignorance is bliss. I didn't really understand the, the gravity of what I was walking into, and I just did the best I could. And, you know, really, without knowing it, I had been training my entire life for that opportunity. You know, that's all preparation up to that point, and then walking into that situation. Was I seasoned? Absolutely not. Was I moldable? Absolutely. I think they realized that. I think they saw the raw talent and they and Prince and Jesse knew that they could you know find ways to mold me into what they needed me to be within that uh, circumstance certain circumstance of that band the time mm -hmm. and those were big shoes to fill too I mean Jam or, or Monty either one depending on who I replaced I don't even know but uh, you know I was uh, that was a big deal yeah, so for those who maybe don't know or don't remember, whatever, famously or infamously, uh, Prince uh, fired Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Monty Moore went with them, and um, they had to scramble and, and reconstitute the time leading up to the uh, Purple Rain movie. Right. Um, so, Paul, stepping back just a bit, you know, being in that area, living there and, and in the music scene, what was the perception of Prince and the whole thing he was building up and, and how much did that sort of uh, change the whole deal there because of the light that was shined on that area? Well, there's no question that he changed the game. No question. And I just happened to be in his camp during the most, I guess, focused period of that 
that that time was a very focused period, especially on him and the music he was creating. He was incredibly prolific during that time. People were knowledgeable about what he was doing. He was writing the best songs of his life. He was getting the most recognition of his life. And he was proud of where he came from. He thought that being from Minneapolis was cool. He didn't split and move out to LA. He was like, no, Minneapolis is my home. Minneapolis is the sound. I'm gonna shine a light on this. I'm gonna be the Minneapolis hero, which he still is, of course, today. But I think that was part of his persona and his, his marketing genius. I think he would have been one of many, many geniuses in LA. But being from Minneapolis and shining the light on the town that he loved so much, I think was not only a cool thing for him to do, but it was a brilliant uh, uh, marketing plan for himself. I mean, that's a strange way to look at it sometimes, but I, I've thought about that quite a bit, and I'm going, why wouldn't he move? But he had access to everything he wanted to here. I think people left him alone. They, they respected his ability to kind of just be private, you know, and I think he really loved that. And obviously he never really moved. He had places elsewhere, but huge game changer. Absolutely huge game changer. Did you actually, you know, hear people talking and saying, you know, I want to be the next prince, so to speak, in that area, or I want to be the next Morris Day, or was there that sort of like trickle-down influence? You mean during that time? Yes. Yeah, yeah like in the... Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think he set a precedence that was very cool. He was uh, an incredible multi-instrumentalist. He really got things done by himself. If you couldn't play all the different instruments, write your own songs, sing your own track, produce everything, record everything by yourself, you weren't happy. So I think if anything, it made us all better. Now, whether I would choose to make records solely by myself, now I choose usually not to because I like the camaraderie of making a record. But that was instilled, I can if I want to. And that's because of the influence that he had on all of us. We all came up learning and, and figuring out it is great to be able to do all these things and depend on yourself. So obviously, Paul, your, your life changed dramatically. Uh, you became part of the time and, and leading up to the film and stuff. You know, were you working around the clock? I mean, just if you could just highlight a few ways that your, your life was turned upside down. Well, they like to rehearse. So we rehearsed six days a week, probably eight hours a day, uh, maybe more, maybe less, for months and months and months and months to get the show absolutely perfect. And this is probably, this is leading up to the filming of Purple Rain. So we're just learning the material. Uh, we're perfecting it. We're stepping into the shoes of their brothers who have been in the band forever. So you've got three new people coming in, very established um, uh, band that, you know, all of a sudden it was disrupted because uh, Prince fired Jam and Lewis, right? So we were in a precarious position, but we didn't know any better because we were all kids. So it's just like, hey, I'm here to play. But they rehearsed us, got us tight so we could live up to what the 
the reputation of the time was. So we rehearsed for months and months and months and months. Did one gig at First Avenue, and then Morris quit after the filming of the movie. So it was, it was a crazy, crazy time. And then we were like, what are we going to do now? And then, uh, you know, that's when the family was born. Yeah, I have, um, of course, this record here. And Look at that guy in the orange suit. Wow. Yeah, who's that guy? David Bowie Light. Duran <laughs> Duran. That's I think that's what he was going for there. You know, I still have that suit. My daughter fits perfectly in that suit. <laughs> you know, I saw the time uh, on the 1999 tour um, with Vanity. And uh, man, they were so tight. It was just an amazing show. Before Jam and Lewis left, I mean, they. Right. Wow. You know, that was when uh, they were making Prince nervous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Trust me. Yeah. What is he? I'm sure he was going, what the heck did I create here? Yeah, I created a Frankenstein monster. Exactly. <laughs> um, so the the making of the actual record though did, did you uh participate in in that in studio or was it mostly just in the movie and on that one show? no i didn't I, the only thing i played on was the live cuts and that would have been really the only live cut that was on there was the bird so that's me on keyboards otherwise it was all studio stuff and i wasn't part of that so uh, before we talk about the family, um, when you first got in that situation, you know, with the personalities and such, how did Morris and Jesse and what were those guys like? Hmm. Well, Morris, Morris was never there. Hmm. He delegated that to um, Jesse, and Jesse was there every day. He was basically the musical director at that time, and uh, he was tough, man. He went to the school of Prince and James Brown, and there was not there was not a lot of praise going on at that time. The way he was kind of breaking you down, right? Ah, oh, you're this, you're that, you'll never be that, you'll never. I was like, oh, great, this is fun. What did I sign up for? Drill sergeant, big time. It, good way to put it. But we made it, and, and really, he was just looking for us to be the best we could be, and that's the way he chose to run the band, and it worked. For And it's probably exactly what I needed, because I will tell you this. Came out a way different musician than I did going in, even though I had my, my family in the trickle-down th theory from my family that I was talking about. This was way more of a disciplined show right and it was different a little bit different music what i learned from them was how to play parts how to play how to be able to you know uh, look as cool as humanly possible be funky and know exactly what it was that you needed to do to get that job done for that band discipline was a big big thing that they taught as well so uh Boy, I, th I think I hated it when I was going through it. But sure. I look back at that now and I go, man, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. He, he really, I mean, I, I swear to you, I, the, the time I was in those two bands, my I, I believe that my level of uh, musicianship went way, way up. Yeah. 
so um, that splintered, and then you ended up coming back, and there's the, the vinyl lab and wow. uh, the family record, which ended up yeah. just being a, a one record thing. So uh, step us through, Paul, um, how that was created and, and what transpired there. Well, I remember the movie was done. Prince had quit. I'm sorry, not Prince. <laughs> no, Prince didn't quit. Morris Day quit. Sorry, I went on vacation for a second there. Morris quit at the time, and basically everybody split from there. After the movie came out, people were dying to sign people like Jesse to a label, right? And Prince had the people who didn't go with Jesse sitting in a room at a warehouse in Eden Prairie. He said, well, everybody, everybody's gone except for you guys, and we're going to do an all-new band, and you're going to be the lead singer. And he pointed right at me, and I just about fell over in my chair. <laughs> he chose me. I mean, I, especially now when I look back at that, I went, that's incredible to have this superstar believe in me enough and my talent enough to choose me. And I don't take that for granted, never have, never will. And that's how the family was born. Wow. So how would you describe Prince then? I mean, did you get to see any side of him that wasn't the persona? Um, you know, can you shine any light on what he seemed to be about? Uh, you know, we didn't really hang in those days. I was certainly not his bro. You know, we... we think he was in very much in business mode and that's really what our relationship was now don't don't get me wrong we had a good time together we had we had plenty of good times I lived in his house in LA when we were shooting the, the family uh, uh, record cover uh, when his dad wasn't there I'd stay in and we shot pool together and those kind of things but uh, it was just fascinating to see him work i mean and really honestly his work was done before i got into the studio i get a phone call from susan rogers or david zine they go there's a tape on its way to you learn it and we'll see you tomorrow night so he would cut the entire rhythm tracks he would do a a, a lead vocal or a lead our guide vocal as we like to call it a lot of you guys have probably heard a lot of those things on high fashion Screams of passion, all those. But what my job was is to copy the inflections and different things like that to the best of my ability. That's what David Z was really good at doing, is getting me to you know, uh, mature as a vocalist at age 19 or 20 or whatever I was at that point in time. So as far as spending time with Prince around that, not a lot. We, we hung out on the Purple Rain tour when he called for me and say, come out, sit in, hang out with me and that kind of thing. But so I got to see glimpses here and there, but we were hanging hard. Well, and Susan Rogers was the uh, engineer um, back then of a lot of great Prince uh, and Prince family records. So what was it like, though, in the studio process? Um, you know, you were... Um, replicating the guide vocals, but in terms of the other people in the band, Jelly Bean and, and Susanna and everybody, what were they like? Well, Jelly Bean took me under his wing immediately when I was in the time, so 
we were fast friends. Dean was there for all my vocal uh, vocal sessions and the uh, for the, for the family record in the warehouse. He'd be sitting next to uh, David Z, and David say, "You're a little, you're a little sharp, or you're a little flat." And and, and Bean was there to encourage me. So he was he's been great. He, I call him my big brother. He just left the house an hour and a half ago. We've remained tight for 35 years, which I'm sure none of us really would have ever dreamed that we'd be hanging and making music, let alone being friends for this long. Susanna was a new friend. You know, uh, I knew Wendy from the revolution, but you know, when this band started, we all kind of just met. I didn't know Eric Leeds at all. Eric was hired by Prince because of, he was looking for a saxophonist and he asked his road manager, his tour manager, Alan Leeds, do you know a horn player? And he says, I just happened to know one. And it was Eric. So Eric came and met Prince, recorded four songs in one day. By that time, I mean, really, they recorded the bulk of the record in a very short amount of time. What uh, to the best were, we got to know each other way more during the rehearsals. During the actual recording of it, we didn't get to hang a lot. You know, it was uh, a little bit more piecemeal, at least from my perspective. So when that record came out, um, I didn't feel it really got, you know, the the promotion it should have. Um, how did you feel about that, and what what kind of happened all around that? I mean, I know you guys only ended up doing a couple of shows live, and what happened? One show. Rehearsed for six months, one show. Mm -hmm. Then they all flew off and made Under the Cherry Moon, and uh, he shipped me off to L.A. Uh, and I was taking singing, acting, and dancing lessons. He didn't tell me what for. And uh, we were all fairly disappointed that we weren't getting we, – the record wasn't getting the push that we thought it deserved. So it's funny that you would say that. <laughs> Around that time, I, I ended up going in for a meeting with John McLean at AM Records, and he said, I want you to produce some stuff for Janet Jackson. I'm like, cool. So I went in, met with him, and he said, I don't want you to produce Janet. I want you to come in, and I want to sign you to AM Records. I'm like, dude, I'm just I'm in the middle of beginning to launch the family record. He went, but well, we want you, and we want you to record your music. And, you know, my whole life I was – brought up to be uh, a writer, a producer from my family, right? So I, to make a very long story short, I considered the idea. So that's when, you know, the, the discussions with Prince and everybody about me leaving came up. Well, and Jesse Johnson was already there, right, at A&M, you're saying? Yes, he was at A&M. Yep. Yeah, and he ended up producing that particular record that, that was being discussed. This is before Janet, you know, took off with Janet Lewis. So, so then, how did these? How and why did the family splinter? Well, because I decided to leave the band. Oh. Um, basically, I wasn't thrilled with the contract that was being offered, and this is all in a bunch of interviews. So, I'm not telling you anything that isn't already in the press. Um, wasn't thrilled with the contract. It was a basically a take it or a leave it situation. 
then uh, was being offered this incredible deal to make my own music, and I went, I'm going to do that. So I basically had to tell Prince, I'm leaving, and that's when the family broke up. And so from that point, that kind of created a bit of a rift between you and Prince, or what was it? You think? You think? <laughs> yeah, he was not happy, and I, I totally understand that. Uh, it's unfortunate that things went down the way they went down, but since there was no communication, and again, I, I, we weren't tight, so there wasn't a lot of communication going on. So basically, I'd go to him, and I'm like, dude, I want to, can I talk to you about this? And he'd like, talk to my manager, and I'd say, talk to his manager, and I'd be like, I'll talk to you about this, and they're like, take it or leave it. And I'm like, well, okay. So I entertained the offer and ended up accepting an offer from Gerald Busby over to MCA Records. I didn't even go over to a and There was a bidding war and the whole bit. So I was pretty caught up in the whole scene, you know, uh, of uh, that Jesse was in. The people were, you know, trying to glom onto whatever Prince had and saw, and, and you know, whether it be Jesse, whether it be Morris. But I was the next one. Out of that bunch, he offered a, a, a record deal. Um, were you surprised years later when uh, "Nothing Compares to You" became such a hit? Yeah, I mean, I I always loved that song, and I loved. First of all, to let you know, I loved the family record. The record was brilliant. So I don't want to just glaze over that. That record to this day stands up, not only by the songwriting and the poetry, but the music and the beautiful, incredible arrangements of Claire Fisher, to this day are unbelievable. One of the, I think one of the big favorites of a lot of, especially the Prince fans, but to answer your question about nothing compares to you, I was driving not street and I heard it I've had to pull over. What? What? Who is singing my song? It was my song. It wasn't her song. and my song. And then we just watched it blow up and watched her blow up. And I, of course, I was a little jealous. But by this time, I was, I was gone. You know, I'd already moved out to doing my own record. So lots of feelings going on about her rendition. And years later. I remember talking to Prince, and I said, dude, I'm really happy for you that that went so big for you. It's one of my favorite songs, if not my favorite song you've ever written. But I didn't tell her she could record that. I'm like, yeah, but it went huge for you. It's not about the money. So I don't know if he loved that version. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I know he was usually generally interesting conversation with him generally critical, not too happy with most covers of his stuff, but. No, in fact, one of the times I went out and talked with him, I think it was the 25th anniversary of Purple Rain. Does that sound right? Um, maybe it was uh, the 30th anniversary. I can't remember, but we, I went out there and there was, in Rolling Stone, there was a, a CD that everybody did covers of different songs of a Purple Rain. And he looked at it and said, did you see this? I went, yeah, I saw this. He said, this makes me mad or, or angry or something like that. I'm like, yeah, they're not 
all these versions aren't the greatest. You can you imagine? He, he did not love other people covering his stuff. You know, the only criticism I had about the family record is that it was too short. I think one of the sides was like 13 or 14 minutes or something like that. And it was so good that I selfishly wanted it to be longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was such a great record. Yeah, it's tremendous. And it was a, um, a crime that it wasn't on CD for so long. I know. I know. No kidding. And, and I, I don't think it's still re-released yet. It came out, uh, what, six months ago or something like that. But I don't, you know, I can't tell if that's a boot or if that's a Warner's thing. And I don't, just not sure who put that, the version of the family on, on Spotify and iTunes and all that. So it looks a little suspicious to me. Yeah. I mean, it was a little bit like a Holy Grail for a while in a way. It was. Yeah. I agree. So you went uh, on to do some solo work and, you know, how did mm -hmm. that turn out for you? I think you've put out a few solo records to date. But the first one came out in the 80s. And how did that process go for you? Talking about another life lesson. I ended up writing and co-producing that record with my brother, Ricky. Boy, I, I mean, I learned how to make a record for real doing that. It, it's one of my favorite records I've ever made. Uh, lots of heartache and learning were involved with that and uh, just trying to figure out who I was an, as an artist. You know, I was thrown into this situation where I was given an incredible opportunity to come up with whatever I wanted to come up with. But the, the coming up with it part was interesting. And, and, and I wanted to make sure I could put out the best record that I, I, I could. So I literally spent eight or nine months in the studio every day obsessing over this thing just learning the techniques of recording a record. You know, I learned a lot from Prince and everybody about the live portion, but there wasn't a lot of involvement in recording. So to translate, translate that into the studio was another opportunity for an education for me. And I, I, I definitely learned an incredible amount of, about record making during that process of that record. I got to work with some incredible people like David Sanborn on that, um, Hiram Bullock, my family, my mom's even on the cut. Uh, it, it was uh, really a fun process. So uh, that was the MCA record, self-titled. Did a video, worked with Paul Abdul on the video, still trying to make me dance, you know. Uh, long, gangly, all arms, all legs, trying to move around. It was a lot of fun. So it was like the precursor to the... Uh, Timberlake days, you know, I think that uh, being a soulful Kuwait soul guy was uh, it was in my soul. I didn't know any better. I mean, I was just making the music that I loved to make. And, uh, you know, we did pretty well with that record, too. So at the end of the day, you were uh, felt um, fulfilled and satisfied by the result of how it was received and or were you hoping no, for I mean, yeah, I wanted it to be triple, quadruple platinum. I wish it was received a lot better than it was received. So I wish it, I wish it would have sold more records. I think that's a from, from an ego perspective, you always want your stuff to do better than 
than uh, than it does. Uh, not disappointed in the work that I did by any means. Know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's a tricky time too, Paul, because uh, the rap and hip hop was really starting to blow up, and you know, music was changing, and it was. Yeah. You know, stand by the song, stand by the music. Uh, it just wasn't the right time for it to blow up. Simple as that. You know, if you would, for the uninitiated, how do you describe the Minneapolis sound? Mm. The Minneapolis sound, boy, if you're talking about the 80s, that's all Prince. Prince, and, and I'm going to add in Jam and Lewis. Add in Jesse Johnson. They all, I mean, but mostly Prince. It's funk, it's great pop, rock, funk, sexy, sloppy, incredible music. And a lot of synth horns, so we were using a lot of technology of, that was uh, on, on the cutting edge of those days. Drum machines, you know, we were emulating uh, James Brown horn sections with OB-8 synthesizers. That's what really created that sound. So. Drum machines, synths, funky guitar, James Brown guitar. But that's, man, that's Prince's deal. I, I got to give it up to him for that. That's all his his deal. But I got to also give credit to Jesse and to uh, Chairman Lewis. But that, to me, is the Minneapolis sound. Yeah, always to me, it always was a certain feel. But really, those synthesizers taking over the horn uh, parts uh, and just a very innovative use of, of the synthesizers. Um, I know you, you told me you got about 15 minutes, so I want to make sure I get through some of these key other questions. But sure, um, if you could just highlight a couple of uh, the the many people that you've worked with outside of that camp that sure. really stood out. Steve Miller, great songwriter, simple rock. Ah, blues, great, great artist. Loved playing with him for five years. Um, and you played bass with him? Played guitar with him. Guitar. Yep, so I played guitar with him. Kenny Loggins, incredibly, what a great soulful singer, incredible songwriter. You know, it goes between folk, pop, blue-eyed soul, um, and a little bit, a little country in there, you know. And classic rock with Loggins and Messina, and that was a great experience. Um, George Benson, what an incredible record I got to cut with him. My brother Ricky, Michael Bland, Tommy LaPuma, probably one of my favorite recording sessions I got to do at Paisley Park. Um, Recently got to tour with Peter Frampton. What a great guitar player he is. Um, and I got to say that my favorite stuff is playing with my family. Mm. I'm blessed to be in a family that loves each other, loves the music we play with each other. So that's probably the highlight. Well, when you mentioned George Benson, I was thinking, uh, I was actually at the recording when they did Weekend in LA, and that was such a thrill. You were there? I was there, yeah. That's a Tommy LaPuma record as well, and I memorized that. I can pull, 
sing you every solo. So that's one of the cool things about this business is you idolize these people coming up, and then all of a sudden you get to work with them, and you're just like, it's George Benson, and then he likes what you do, and I get to write a song for him. So it, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, they, they told us they were recording that too at the time, and so we screamed our heads off. Were you uh, Was that the Hollywood Bowl? Where was that? No, no, that was at the Roxy on Sunset. In, no. Yeah. Really? Uh -huh. Wow. Yeah, that Great. place was. I saw I saw many amazing uh, acts back then at the Roxy, <laughs> including Prince, his first West Coast. Uh, <laughs> Pardon me, I'm sneezing. That's what you owe. That's Bless you, uh, Paul. in Minneapolis during this time. Yeah, I'll say it was just a year later when I saw Prince's first West Coast show at that same venue. Really? Yeah. Wow. It was funny. He was singing only in falsetto then. And so some of the brothers were ribbing him over, you know, wearing the uh, leg warmers, bikini briefs, and singing falsetto. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so let's talk uh, F Deluxe, Paul. Um, sure. This was uh, the big uh, comeback record, Gaslight, a few years ago. And yeah, um, tell us uh, why and how uh, you came back together and what you've been doing since. Well, Sheila E is the first one who got us back together for a, for a fundraiser she did. God, it's a long time ago now. We all looked at each other when we were playing these songs and we went, this is fun. It's more fun than when we were kids because we now we have lived our lives, have children of our own. We have our own stories to tell. We almost got together and started touring then, but Susanna ended up being pregnant. And, uh, so we put that on hold. And Quip asked us, to, like I told you, play for his pre-Grammy party. We looked at each other again and we, we went, this is something we have to do. So when I wasn't on tour with Kenny Loggins at that time, I was living in Susanna's garage. I had all my, you know, my speakers, my guitar, my bass, my keyboard, all my virtual instruments inside of my computer. We would sit and write, and that's where that record came from. And F Deluxe was born. Of course, we tried to use the, the, the name The Family, and Prince was like, uh-uh, you're missing the most important person in that band me and you can't use the name so needless to say you know we didn't want to compete with that firepower and uh, out of respect we didn't use the name it's like the original seven yeah yeah that wasn't the only one <laughs> we weren't the only one so you guys also did uh this one and you yes sir i helped uh, do the crowdfunding uh, thing here because i got the signed copy Thank you, buddy. I appreciate the uh, the pledge at Pledge Music. That's an interesting, great way to, to uh, be able to make records now without a major recording deal. You get the fans to enjoy, uh, to join you in the creative process, and it's it's really been a game changer for so many different artists. Not only you know uh, F Deluxe, but I've seen David Samor do records like that. You name them; they're all doing it on Pledge Music. And it's neat to be able to connect with fans on that level. I, th I think this record especially um, helps show how you guys can bring it as a band now because, you know, in the first version, you guys didn't really get to show that off because you only did the one-off performance, and now you guys yep. are really bringing it live, and you've made right. that 
known and, and on this record with all the covers, because you do these songs justice, you know, you're not just going through the motions. No, we worked at that. That was a good record. We had a lot of fun with the different arrangements on there. So the Minneapolis uh, All-Stars, tell me uh, about that. It's an offshoot of, you know, all the wonderful people who have been a part of making making the Minneapolis sound, what it is and what it's famous for, whether it's my uh, my brother Ricky, Mike Scott, a um, bunch of different people, whomever is available from that time period who contributed to you know, the success of the Minneapolis sound in that day and age. It's fun to go back and play that music because that opens up a whole catalog of music that I don't normally get to play. So that's really what it's about. It's a tip of the hat to to where we grew up and the music that we helped create. And how might a show, if, if one goes to one of those shows, differ from seeing one of the MPG shows or the Revolution shows? Well, we get to play music from all different, all the different bands, whether it's, whether it's Prince, whether it's The Time, whether it's Sheila, whether it's Alexander O'Neill, whether it's Janet, all the different, whether it's Jesse Johnson, there's different songs that made, you know, this town known, you know, for that sound, the Minneapolis sound. And we get to do whatever we want from that with the real guys who made those records famous. And that's the beauty of that. And that's what's fun about it. Well, you could play 10-hour concerts with that kind of catalog. You really could. And we, we tailor make it, for example, we, we played Most Beautiful Girl in the World when Ricky, my brother, was out because he produced that for Prince. And that's one of his last you know, hits that he had. So, so we get to play that. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. That's all I was going to say. It's just fun to be able to play that music that he helped create. And the uh, project with uh, Eric Leeds, when is that coming? Well, that was another Pledge Music uh, record. Uh, Eric's my old buddy, of course, from family. But we also are bebop heads. He's a huge jazz fan and has put out many records madhouse and then two on his own and i i grew up in a uh in a jazz family so uh we got together and started this band called leeds peterson music and we love this new record and it probably will come out sometime in the middle of this year but uh, for those of you who have pledged you have your cds in your hot little hands we just sent the last ones out, I guess, two weeks ago. It's a mix of funk, fusion, metal. So anything like a, a madhouse or different? Well, there are some influences on that, uh, but I would say that it's more eclectic and kind of showcases where we're at today. And what about... The F Deluxe, is there a new record in the works, or where's that going to go? Not yet, but, you know, I never say never. Uh, at this point, we're, we're just concentrating on the shows that we want to get done and enjoying the fact that all five of us will be on stage at the Dakota on January 31st. Pretty Absolutely. interesting that we could do that. That is fantastic. So, okay, one more question for you. I like to ask guests. You know, the show's called Truth and Rhythm. For you, Ricky, um, Paul, sorry, Ricky. Um, I bet that's not the first time that happened. <laughs> what, 
what does that mean to you? How do you find truth in the music that you create? Being authentic to what's in your body, you know, and, and being the most authentic artist you can be, whether that be by how you paint, so to speak, the canvas of, of in the recording studio, uh, different colors you're able to put on songs, whether lyrically or musically, tonally, uh, sonically, experimentally. It, it's uh, it's all about not staying or standing still, and that's one of the cool things that I think Prince really was adamant about. He's like, "Why are you doing old music? Why don't you play mu new music?" I'm like. Dude, I'm always creating, but I got to. He, he didn't necessarily like playing old songs. That's part of my past, and I, I I honor that past because number one, I love the records. Number two, I love the people I did it with. But forging ahead and challenging yourself, being authentic to the music that you're going to create in the future, I think it's super important that uh, you surround yourself with people who are as inspired as you are, and. Uh, have fun, create art. That's what it's all about. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you all these years bringing so much great music to us. And I know I'm speaking for all the viewers too, and for, you know, holding that torch for the Minneapolis sound, you know, we love it. Thank you, bud. Thanks for uh, continuing to uh, promote the work that we do. You know, if it wasn't for people like you, we'd, uh, we wouldn't have an outlet. So, we all appreciate that very much. You're most welcome. If you could just hang tight for one minute, I'm going to close this out here. Okay. Um, so time to wrap up this edition of Truth and Rhythm. A huge thanks again to my special guest, Paul St. Paul Peterson, a key figure and preserver of the funk-drenched uh -huh. sound of Minneapolis. Thank you again so much, Paul. Thank you, buddy. Sincere thank you to our viewers. And uh, we want to hear from you. Look out for upcoming episodes of Truth and Rhythm and email me at scottg at funkystuff.net. Let me know what you like, who you want to see. Until next time, on behalf of Paul Peterson, this is Scott, yep. Dr. Jake Skolfine. There's Paul saying keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. Thank you.